invite you to, to join me in your Bibles, Romans chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to have you use the one that's provided there in the pew. Uh, if you don't know where Romans 7 is, Paul's letter to the Romans, the page number is in the order of service that's in the worship folder, and the outline for the sermon that we'll have here is on the back there that might help you to follow along. Romans 7, verses 7 to 25 is our text for this morning. If you're watching the news at all, you know that the issue of abortion is hotly contested these days after a draft of a decision from the Supreme Court was leaked that seems to indicate that they will overturn Roe v. Wade, the 1973 decision that legalized abortion across the country. And since that leak, a few weeks ago, there have been protests at the Supreme Court, Uh, protesters at the homes of Supreme Court justices, new legislation in Congress proposed and failed to pass by those who wanted to secure the right to have an abortion. If you've been with us for any length of time, you know that as a church we are anti-abortion, though if you disagree or you just don't understand why uh, we would take that position, I'd be glad to have a respectful discussion with you on that topic. The reason why I mention this at the outset of this sermon is not so much to comment on abortion specifically as to consider the limits of the law. You've probably heard it said, you can't legislate morality. And some people think that means, hey, don't impose your morality on me. Uh, But of course, every law enforces some kind of morality on all of us, whether that's about abortion or gender issues or whatever. Uh, Every law imposes some kind of morality, someone's morality on all of us. Um, And good laws are there for a good purpose and can have good results. So for example, a law prohibiting or severely restricting abortion would affirm the value of human life and save actual human lives. But but even a good law can't make every citizen pro-life. They can't make every citizen value human life any more than our laws against murder put an end to conflict, hate, and shootings. Uh, That's the sense in which you can't legislate morality. Better put, you can't legislate righteousness. You can't legislate godliness. You can't legislate holiness. There are limits to the law. And that's what our text is about today. God's law has a good purpose, but it cannot save us. It cannot change us into the people that we're supposed to be, that God wants us to be. So as those who have done wrong, we cannot remove our guilt uh, or gain a righteous standing before God at the final judgment through our obedience. We've seen this earlier in the letter to the Romans. Salvation comes not through the law or our obedience to it, but through Christ, through His death and resurrection, what we just sang about. His death paid for our sins. He is the Redeemer. So that salvation then is by God's grace, not to be received through our faith, not our works. That's justification, all of that. And that's the theme of chapters 1 to 5, chapters 6 through 8, where we've been the last few weeks is about sanctification. That is, uh, salvation is more than just our standing at the final judgment. It's more than just getting out of hell and getting into heaven. It's more than that. God's doing more than that when He redeems us. It includes an ongoing transformation here and now into the people who are truly devoted to God. 
as loyal subjects of the king, as a faithful bride to our bridegroom. That's who God is making us. He's who He's saving us. What He's saving us for. Not just, again, not just what He's saving us from, but what He's saving us for. All right? How do we become God's holy people? Here's the theme for today. Don't look to the law to save you from sin. Only Christ sets you free. Don't look to the law to save you from sin, and not just, again, not just the guilt or the penalty, but to save you from the power of sin over you. Don't look to the law to save you from sin. Only Christ sets you free. We're going to take this in three parts, the last three paragraphs of chapter 7. But to set it up, I really need to read the preceding paragraph as well. That's verse four, verses 4 through 6. Uh, follow me there. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now, Paul is going to talk about that new way of serving God in the Spirit in chapter 8 next week. We'll get there. Uh, the rest of chapter 7, though, is about the old way of the law. So, sorry, it's going to be a little bit of a downer. I mean, we're going to focus on the negative side of things before we get to the really good stuff next week. But this is important. So, uh, verses 7 through 12. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. This is part one. Promised life proved to be death. The law that shows you what is wrong also stirs up sin within you. Now, do you understand why he asks the question in verse 7, what then shall we say? In other words, okay, so what conclusion should we draw if, verse 5, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death, if, what conclusion should we draw if, verse 6, we had to be released from the law to be able to serve God through the Spirit? Do we then conclude that the law is sin? And Paul says, hey, no, no way. Paul, Paul raises this question to clear up any uh, possible misunderstandings here. Uh, any Jew among his readers might have been appalled. I mean, you're talking about God's law here. These are the Holy Scriptures. God's law given to Israel through Moses. The law stands against sin. And Paul, you make it sound like they're in cahoots. Law and sin working together against us. That doesn't make any sense, and it sounds like blasphemy. I'm not going to listen to anything else you have to say. 
He has to address that possible misunderstanding from the Jews. On the other hand, there might have been some Gentiles who would have been tempted to think, uh, hey, sounds like you're saying the law is part of the problem, so I guess, you know, obedience is just unnecessary. But as we've seen Paul already emphasize over and over in chapter 6, grace, God's grace to us that he will forgive us freely as a gift does not mean lawlessness. Oh, we can do whatever we want. He's going to forgive us. Grace doesn't mean lawlessness. It's still true that we must serve God, obey God, but in a new way. Okay, so how can Paul say that the law is good yet insufficient? Good, but seemingly problematic. Well, let's think through his example at the end of verse 7 and into verse 8. So he says, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had, said, had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Now, the law does not create sin, but it points it out. It stirs it up. It, it, it makes it active in us. We, we often hear people use the phrase, I don't know when this started, in, in my lifetime for sure, I'm talking about raising awareness. We, want to, let's, we just want to raise some awareness about uh, mental health or breast cancer, trying to raise awareness about this issue so that people are not ignorant in the sense of like, uh, I just don't want to talk about that, or, or simply naive. They just don't know that there's this problem that you could know about. And, and perhaps if you had an awareness, um, you, you need to see the issue and then take action uh, regarding it. And in one sense, that's what God was doing when he gave us the law. He was raising awareness about sin. Hey, see that? That's wrong. That's, that's deadly. That will hurt you. This is this. That's what you should not do. And at the end of verse 7, Paul cites number 10 of the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet. The full verse in, from Exodus chapter 20 The original giving of the Ten Commandments goes like this, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor. Look, you know, you're you're looking over the fence and you're seeing all the nice things that your neighbor has and you're like, it's not, it's not like you want to keep up with the Joneses. I want to, I want to have a a nice car like he has, like, that's that's a nice car. I want it. That, that's what we're talking about. Now, many have noted uh, uh, that unlike other commands in the Ten Commandments, like against murder, adultery, theft, lying, coveting is a sin of inner desire, not outward action. But covetousness is a problem because it, it dishonors the God who gave you what you have, and this, content, this discontent corrupts you, the seeds of bitterness and resentment growing, and what kind of fruit do those things bear? Uh, well, they might turn into murder and adultery and theft, but uh, the fruit that comes from that breaks down the bonds of family, and, and bonds of com- it undermines community in, in the church and in society. Sin is the way of death. Obedience to God is the way of life. And this is what God said through Moses back then in the time of the giving of the law. This is uh, from Leviticus 18, verses 4 and 5. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. 
I am the Lord. But Paul says, the law that promised life, if you, do, if you walk in this way, you will live. The law that promised life proved to be death. See, raising awareness can also work against you. It can draw your attention in the wrong way. Uh, doesn't, it, doesn't it make you at least a little curious when you see a sign on a door or, or a, maybe on a fence, no trespassing or no unauthorized access? You're like, what's in there? What do they got that they don't want me to have? What, is, what, don't, what don't they want, they want me to see? What they have in there? Or, or doesn't it at least make you wonder when, when Bob puts a sign downstairs in the fellowship hall, one donut per person? You're at least like, well, how many would I like to have? Well, apparently, before sin entered the world, this was not a problem. When the first humans were truly innocent, it took the temptation of a servant to question the one, the one and only law that God gave them. You can eat of every tree. Look at all this. I get, I'll give you every plant and every tree for food except this one. Eat this and you will die. And we don't know how long Adam and Eve uh, lived in innocence without shame, happily going on with this law, but enter Satan. Why, why do you think God doesn't want you to have that? Is he holding out on you? And countless times, ever since, for every single one of us, sin seizes its opportunity through the commandment. Oh, how can it be? And today, after the sin of Adam and Eve, no one is innocent. We don't come with the, the innocence of, oh, oh, well, God said that. Oh, oh okay. No, we, when God says, hey, don't eat that, we're like, well, hey, why not? It looks good to me. I think I want to try it. I mean, don't you want me to have things that make me happy? And this happens with all kinds of sin, but just, just sticking with uh, this covetousness, coveting for the moment. God says, being content, choosing joy in what I have is the way of life. While focusing on what I do not have, and even worse, Pursuing what is not mine to have is not just the way of joylessness, it's the way of death. But the law just makes me wonder, oh yeah, but what, what's God trying to keep from me? Would I be happier if I had what they have? The law, the same law that shows you what is wrong also stirs up sin within you. And ultimately, the problem is not the law, it's sin, it's, it's what's in us. But here's Paul's larger point, don't, don't forget this, it's not just a point about the law, when you have a sin problem, the law can't save you. When, when you are corrupted by sin, sin, the law can't change you. It, the law is good in itself, but it, it's not enough. If you want to live for God what, you need something more than the law. Now, I'm sorry to say that the next paragraph is not any more encouraging. So, but it's, it's not encour more encouraging about the law or about our human condition, but we're pressing through here to let him make his point that we need to get. Verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? 
By no means. It was sin, not the law, producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but, the, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Wow, that, that guy's got issues. Okay, we, we've got issues, right? Yep. This is part two. The desire, but not the ability. The law that shows you what is right cannot give you the power to do it. The law that shows you what is right cannot give you the power to do it. So go back to the beginning of this paragraph. Verse 13 starts off with Paul reiterating what he's already said. The law is not the problem. Sin is. But then it gets interesting. I wonder if you heard this, notice this, the, the purpose statement in here. What do I mean by that? Well, just 13 again. Uh, what, show, what then? No, excuse me. Verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that... Okay, here's the purpose in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Now, the only person who could have had such a purpose or intent was the one who gave the law in the first place, which is God, right? The first part of that might not be all that surprising. Uh, He gave the law in order that sin might be shown to be sin, yeah, well, God would want that, right? To be clear, this is, this is going beyond the, the whole raise awareness thing that I was talking about earlier. Not just, um, do you see this? That's wrong. Don't do it. Not, not just that. This is next level. Did you see what happened when you did that? I told you that was wrong. So that sin could be shown to be sin. And the next part, another purpose, in order that, and through the commandment, become sinful beyond measure. I'm like, wait, really? God's intention for the law was to make the problem worse? Flip, flip back a page or two just uh, it, to Romans 5, the end of Romans 5, and look at verse 20, almost the very end of that chapter, Romans 5, verse 20. Paul said, now the law came in to increase the trespass. There's that that same purpose. Now, understand, it doesn't mean that the law was intended to make us sin more, but to increase the trespass. That means to, to to highlight the violation, 
to just to show how far we had fallen short, to highlight our disobedience, to magnify our corruption, to emphasize our guilt, so that he could display his mercy, so that he could magnify his grace. How does the verse end? The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So God did have a purpose in the law to, in one sense, magnify sin, to magnify our guilt so that he could match it and surpass it with his grace. Whoa. Now, that's getting to the good stuff, and we're, we're still stuck in the bad stuff here. We're, we're getting ahead of ourselves. In this paragraph, we're still talking about the law magnifying sin and our inability to do what's right. So, verse 14 for we know that the law is spiritual, it is of God, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now we have to be careful here because many people have absorbed the idea that it's our physical existence that's the problem. If we could just escape our bodies, we could, just, we could reach the divine. Um, in ancient times, that uh, whole way of thinking was called Gnosticism. It looks like Gnosticism, spelled with a G. Gnosticism was the teaching that it's, the, it's our physical existence that's a problem. If we could just, you know, be pure mind, pure soul, that would be, that would be it. Uh, we would be connected to, uh, to God. That's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, what we see in Scripture from, th- throughout the Bible, I mean, think of the very beginning, God made human beings uh, with both souls and bodies, and He said it was all very good. Think of the middle of the Bible. The Son of God Himself took on flesh. And after His death, He was not simply released from His body so He could be free. No, He was resurrected to a new body. And the promise is that we too will be raised to a new new bodies, new physical experience in a new creation resurrection within a restored creation. We're going to see this much more in chapter 8. A lot of good stuff in chapter 8. Hope you'll be back next week. But here and now, and, and on our own, we are in a mess. Before we dive further into what he, Paul says in verses 15 to 20, you should know there's, a, there's some debate about how to understand this passage. Some of you may be well aware of this. Uh, going by what Paul said earlier in verses 5 and 6, the old way of serving God was the law. The new way is the Spirit. We used to live in the flesh. Now we live by the Spirit. So is all this stuff about the law, our experience before our faith in Christ, and chapter 8 is after our experience? A lot of people hear that, and and there's some reason to go in that direction of interpretation. The only problem is that that kind of leaves all of this chapter where we think like, oh, yeah, that's that's how I feel. That's where I'm at. That's my struggle. It's like, uh, so is this not supposed to, this is not where a, a Christian experiences? Well, without getting into all the complexities, and there are many, of the possible interpretations, I think we can apply this to us today if we remember, if we go back even further, to remember what Paul said in chapter 6. That is, even though believers who have been united with Christ through faith so that we have died to sin, we have died to the law, sin and death no longer have dominion over us, 
But he says in Romans 6, ah, but it's still possible for you to let sin reign over you. it, It has no authority. It has no claim on you now that you are in Christ. But don't let sin reign over you anymore. It's like we could, it's still possible for us to to go to revert back to the old ways of living. And so if that's true, I think we can apply this to us here. What Paul is warning believers in Rome and believers like us today is this. Now that you are a Christian, you recognize sin for what it is. You agree with the law. Good. But the law doesn't give you the power to obey God. The law is not going to help you in terms of your sanctification, in terms of your godliness, in terms of your holiness. The law doesn't give you the power, the ability to obey God. So if your strategy uh, here today as a Christian who says, yes, God's word tells me what's right and what's wrong, and I want to obey God, and your strategy then is is merely knowing what the Bible says about right and wrong, and then applying your own willpower against temptation, guess what? You're going to be right here in Romans 7. You will fail. Take a moment to think about a particular temptation that, that plagues you, that troubles you. Uh, maybe it's a food you just can't say no to, or a battle with lust that you can't seem to shake. Maybe it's jealousy toward someone who is a rival to you in some way, and you just are you're fixated on this person and your comparison and so forth. And you know, you know that your attitudes or your actions are wrong. You want to change. You keep trying, but you seem to fail again and again. And where does that leave you? Of course, after trying again and again, after failing again and again, you're left ashamed. Too embarrassed to ask for help. Too tired to keep on fighting. Doesn't necessarily mean you are not a Christian. In fact, if you are fighting sin, if you want to change, it probably does point to a real change that has begun in you. But here's the thing. While the law can point you in the right direction, the law can't take you where you want to go. Do you understand that? The law can point you in the right direction, but the law itself, your willpower and the law, can't take you where you want to go, where God wants you to go. What did we see in the, in the previous sermon from the beginning of this chapter? The only way to live for God is out of a life-giving relationship with God. He's got to be in you, with you, so that His life is working out of your life. The law can point to the way of life, but it can't give you life. It can't bring your dead soul to life. It condemns, the law condemns. Christ justifies. Christ gives you your standing and makes you the person that God wants you to be. Now, one more paragraph to go. And it starts in the same dark place, but we're finally going to get some light. All right, verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, 
Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now, to me, that, that last sentence, I mean, we could have, could have just said, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, there is therefore now, verse 1 of 8, there is therefore now no condemnation. I think that last sentence there keeps, it, it's one of the things, one of the reasons I've shifted in my thinking that I think this is describing our present experience. I, I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Uh, he's going to tell us about serving in the Spirit in this next chapter. But let's get to this final part. Who will deliver me? You cannot defeat sin through the law. God will save you through Christ. That's how it happens. So if you weren't already perplexed by your struggle with sin, uh, you might be frustrated here with Paul's use of the word law. What is he talking about? You you were able to follow along. Let's let's try to work our way through here. Uh, Verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Now, this law is not, he's not talking about the biblical law, not talking about God's law. I find it to be a law. So this is like a general rule, a law like gravity. Like this is just how it is. It's, it, it, it's always, it always happens this way. It's like it's the law of gravity. You throw something up, it always comes down. Every time I want to do good, every time, every time, you can count on it. Evil, evil is right there. Uh, Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God, so he's distinguishing, yes, that's biblical law, uh, the Ten Commandments, that's God's law, Scripture. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, verse 23, but I see in my members, that is his outer being, his physical body, another law, going back to that first rule, that law like gravity, that seeming inevitability, that law waging war against the law of my mind, that inner desire to do what's right according to God's word, and making me captive to the law of sin, that inescapable rule that dwells in my members, my body with its disordered, disordered desires. That's, so this, this is struggle. This, this war is going on in your body and in your soul. And you could say it's, it's between these two laws, so to speak. God's law that points up to where you should be and the law of sin that's pulling you down the inevitability of this law of gravity so to speak and you try and if you here's the thing if you try to fight sin on your own you will end up as a pow you are going to be a a captive a casualty of the war if you fight this on your own like what a mess do do you do you see yourself in this i mean i think we can all uh, like, I don't want to nod. He doesn't think that I'm struggling with sin. We're, this is, we're all here. We're all here. So don't, you don't have to be afraid to, like, yeah, that's me. Oh, boy. Yeah, we're all in this mess. If, if we're on our own. And at this point, I hope you're, I hope you're not hearing all that I'm saying and, and think, okay, I just, so I need a better strategy. I need a better strategy for fighting sin or a, a more correct theological answer to the problem of sin and temptation. We're going to go deep into that next week, the new way of the Spirit. That's what we're supposed to be doing. But, but for now, we need to let this passage hit us in the way that it's supposed to. Hit us in the way that Paul wants to, to, to go where Paul wants to take us, which is 
to the end of ourselves. To the place where we're like, I, I don't have the, what's in me. We said this many times earlier in the, in the book. Like, you you want to be righteous before God at the end? You, you, you don't have it in you. You, you want to you change your life now to be a better kind of person, a kind of person more like God wants you to be? You don't have it in you. Now, that's not meant to you know, tear down your self-esteem. That's, that's not what it's about. But understand what's going on here. When, when uh, Paul says, I, I'm a mixed-up failure. I'm no, I'm no good. It's recognizing what he said back in verse 18. Nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my flesh. He puts that qualifier there. You know, apart from the work of the Spirit in my life, if you just take me on my own, there's nothing good in me. The law can tell me what's right and wrong, but it doesn't give me the ability, and I don't have the ability with or without the law. How pathetic, wretched man that I am. I can't save me. The law can't save me. Who will save me? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, Christian, you already know the answer. Only God can save you through Christ, by His Spirit, justified through faith in what Christ accomplished for you in His death and resurrection. You know this. We're, we're sanctified. We're made godly, made holy by depending on the Spirit for Him to lead, guide, and empower you to do what is right. You know the answer. Are you going to save yourself through the law? No way. Will God save you through Christ? Yes and amen. Thanks be to God. There's a, a little snatch of poetry that goes back a few hundred years at least. Some people think it uh, originated from John Bunyan, the guy who's famous for writing Pilgrim's Progress. And if you look it up, there's, a, there's different variations. It's sort of evolved in different ways. But the most familiar way that, it, that I, I usually see it written is like this. It's going to be up on the screen. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly. It gives us wings. If all you have is the law, then you don't have what you need even to obey it. And the law is not going to give it to you. You may be well aware this morning of your failure. Stuck in it, captive to it. Don't hear me saying, I would be a poor preacher I would be a damnable preacher if I said to you, hey, everyone, let's go. Let's get out there and try harder this week. Come on. Sin is, I know sin is is tempting, but come on, we really got to get serious about this, folks. Do, do, Do what's right this week. Amen. See ya. That's not the gospel. Run, John, run the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. If you have the gospel, if you have Christ, there is a calling higher even than the law. The law simply asks us, hey, uh, this is what's right, this is what's wrong, do what's right, uh, just kind of do, do all these things, conform to a moral standard. But the calling of the gospel is more than just meeting a moral standard. It's calling us to love God with 
all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's, that's there in the law, too. You, you, you know that. But the power to do it, the higher calling, fly, soar, and here are the wings to go there. Augustine, an early uh, church father, Augustine said as a prayer, God, give what you command and command what you will. Which is to say, God, if, if you'll just give me what I need to do your will, then you can ask anything you want from me. He wasn't giving God permission to ask anything. God can ask anything he wants from you. But he's saying, go ahead, God. Set the, set, make your calling the, the greatest challenge, the, the highest goal, the, the, the deepest chain, transformation of my life or, or the, taking the gospel to the world, the highest challenge, the greatest goal. You can, you can ask anything, God, if you'll just supply what we need to do, what we need to do it, to give us the wings. We'll talk about those wings next week, but you can read ahead. It's okay. You can read ahead in chapter 8, but I'll give the last word this morning back to, a, to Paul, but this time from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 56 and 57. He says, in words that you probably know, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a believer this morning, the victory is yours in Christ. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we confess our sin before you. In the quietness of this moment, no doubt there are things flashing before our minds, memories of failure, memories of times where we thought, this time I'm really serious, and failure. And Lord, whether it was intentional or not, whether we we, we just reverted back to a, a simple law way of trying to serve you. God, give us the wings of the gospel. Give life to dead hearts through what you've done for us in Christ by your Spirit. Give us life in your ways so that we can be the people that you want us to be, give, that we can be the people that in some sense, we want to be, but can't do on our own. God, would you do that work? We pray with Christians long ago, give what you command and command what you will. May that be so among us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.